You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast, where we equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Botker, and I'm joined with my good friends, Dr. Stephen Kistler, an epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health, and Dr. Mark Kistler, who is a doctor at the University of Colorado Hospital. How's it going, guys? Happy Thursday to both of you. Happy Thursday, hey, indeed. It's Happy good to see you guys. Yeah. Good to see you. Yes, yes, it's great to see you guys. I'm glad we could keep going with this and the fact that we're all three still together. I'm just waiting for Mark or Stephen to go back into some random cave, but so far we've really lucked out. Um, Stephen has some really great news that he cannot share with you. Isn't that really great? That's really awesome. <laughs> he may he may have created the vaccine to cure that everything. That's not true. That's probably <laughs> not that is not true. That is completely false. <laughs> so, but it is. You did, did get a quarantine haircut. Right. I'm uh, yeah, I'm seeing yeah, yeah. on Oh, you did. Here. Who, man, I don't know if that's yeah. good or not. But I, uh, <laughs> well, now you just did you? Did you? Just, <laughs> that, yeah, totally, totally ruined yeah, it. We'll post a picture. Stephen, on did the you next get one of those notes? <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh, we need to get a before and after. Oh, yeah, yeah. On, on, on the notes, shots. That'd be yeah. His hair went down to like his 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 ankles. It was crazy. Yep. Now I got to cut. Uh, but uh, did you buy one of those uh, like clippers from Amazon? Yeah, I did. You know, apparently there's a rush on them now. You can't find them, but um, got one just before they ran out. And so, uh, yep. Here's you now you can see the that's uh, the effects. This is, this is, this is, okay. So my wife has been cutting our boys' hairs for years, right? Because we were just like, ah, oh, let's just save money, right? right? We, we got clippers. And I told her, if you need to create a video on how to give kids haircuts, because it'll go viral. Absolutely. I know, because I know, I mean, there's clearly tons of hairstylists who can do it, but from a person who has no concept of haircutting, right? right. And to be able to do it, in fact, that's, that's the majority of people in the world, right? right? That, that, that they don't. So I've been getting her, I'm like, you've got to do this, right? So she like, I mean, it'd be crazy. So I'm glad you got the haircut. You did a great job. You could do the video. <laughs> Thanks. Well. Yeah, this was, and this I, was, credit goes to Ellen, who's the roommate here. <laughs> She's, uh, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I couldn't have done She's, this myself, she, that's for sure. I probably wouldn't have hair well done. on the side of my head. But <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, I need a haircut myself. You won't be able to tell because I have such little hair right now, you can tell, but I do need a haircut myself <laughs> and I need a schedule with my new hairstylist, my wife. So, uh, anyway, I'm glad to see you guys. I'm glad things are going well. I'm glad we're all back here. Uh, a few things. Okay, uh, that big news. That I, w- I wasn't joking. There is big news. But we can't tell you that that was true as well. But Monday, Stephen says it's possible that he's able to share it with you. So hang on tight. Please come back on Monday to hear some pretty, pretty, pretty awesome news from uh, Pandemic. A couple of things. Again, we always need reviews. Uh, could really appreciate it. Take a few seconds, uh, give it whatever it deserves, make a comment on iTunes. We really appreciate it. We're still just looking for some funding to help us get, increase our audio, uh, to help with editing. Uh, so many things we really like to do to move this to the next level. So you can do that at patreon.com slash pandemic podcast, patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash pandemic podcast. You'll see that in the show notes, show notes, show notes, <laughs> show notes. I need another cup of coffee, guys. It's uh, we're, we're recording this at 930 show, in the morning. Show salamanders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure, yeah. yeah, totally. Uh, so let's get in a few things in the news that I've seen. And then we, we want to kind of riff on this long game again, as we're kind of now waiting this out. But a few things I want to talk to Stephen and Mark about that I saw and want to reflect on with you guys. Warmer weather. We've talked about this before. I saw a recent article that's saying that that may not have an impact on COVID. And I think I was a little hopeful that maybe this would just would help a little bit. Uh, Steven, Mark, do you guys want to chime in on this a little bit? And uh, is this true? And what's the recent evidence of uh, the, the weather in light of COVID? Yeah, so I I think that it seems to be that like this to some extent we've sort of known this for a while in the sense that we've seen circulation of coronavirus in places that are very warm. 
So the story is a little bit complex in that it's not just temperature and it's actually probably not primarily temperature that affects the circulation of, of respiratory viruses. For flu, it actually seems to be mostly driven by absolute humidity, uh, which uh, affects viral survival outside of the body. And that may or may not be true for um, some of the other human coronaviruses that cause the common cold. But I think one of the key issues is that the the amount that that matters also depends a lot on how many people are susceptible in the population. You know, you mm-hmm. can kind of imagine that, like, you know, if, if we're thinking about this outbreak as like a wildfire, you know, if mm-hmm. if it's if it's a very small fire, then a little bit of rain will really help. But if it's a really huge fire where there's a lot of fuel to burn, then a little bit of rain is really not going to have much of an impact at all. So it's sort of the same mm-hmm. thing here where there's just so many people susceptible that we're not going to see potentially much of an impact from warmer weather and from the degree of seasonality. But, you know, okay. it's I think it is still definitely an open question. It's not something we know for sure, but more and more evidence seems to be mounting that you know, at least the warmer weather won't turn it around. Might help us some, but... Okay. Um, We'll still see outbreaks uh, through the summer, I would imagine. So you're saying that uh, keeping our furnace at 90 degrees every day in our house for the past three weeks and just pouring water everywhere for humidity is maybe may not having the, bi- the biggest impact? <laughs> you know, yeah, it, it, it might make you feel a little bit better. Dang. But, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't better. <laughs> I'm dying of heat over here. If I'm in Maui, and, and, but without the beach. So, okay. Uh, good news. Okay. Well, th- uh, other thing in the news I saw here is can the virus get in the water? I see a couple articles about this and I just want to reflect briefly. Is this an issue? Can it be an issue? Will it be an issue? Is, is this something that we should be concerned about? I mean, so uh, I think it's... I think that our water supply is probably uh, one of the less likely things that's going to spread coronavirus, if at all. So, I mean, it's true yeah. that that you can shed the coronavirus, you know, through sewage, basically. Sure. But by the time the water has been treated, and by the time that the virus itself has been diluted so much by after you know passing through from bin to bin, you know, I, I think that the infectious dose that could potentially be in our water supply is pretty minimal, and you're much more likely to get it in a lot of other routes. So as far as I can tell, all the evidence suggests that our water supply is very safe. Unless you have one that smells like fish. That's my- <laughs> yeah, you might want to get that. <laughs> taken care. Not, not, I mean, clearly I have to keep coming back to this, that's, you guys. I'm just anaerobic. so, I'm just that's so, fr- yeah, that's not coronavirus. <laughs> yeah, so. I'm just so frustrated. Okay. So uh, next thing I want to throw this to Mark. Uh, I just saw this yesterday and the complexity of this, uh, the idea of is COVID airborne or is it droplets? Who knows? Okay. I just need to know What's the difference between airborne and droplets, Mark? Yeah, so a couple things. When we talk about airborne versus droplet transmission, it's important to remember that these are designations that are used um, particularly in public health settings or in hospitals to determine the level of protection that personnel and patients need to have. Um, And so it's misleading in, in terms of nomenclature because when we think about airborne, we mean, oh, it can travel through the air. But actually that has a more precise meaning in this context. Mm-hmm. Um, and so essentially respiratory droplets are bigger. Um, they're kind of big droplets of water um, or secretions. Mm-hmm. And so they come out when you cough or you sneeze. Um, they're the things that you, you know, you rub your eye and you put on the doorknob and then somebody else can pick up. And these are you know, they're still microscopic, but they're relatively larger droplets. And the key from a, a droplet perspective is that it keeps a moist environment. And so viruses that require moisture, um, it, such as influenza, um, stay alive in a respiratory droplet. Mm. But the advantage, you know, uh, the the thing about respiratory droplets is they don't tra- travel as far and they don't last in the air quite as long 
um, as what we call airborne transmission. So airborne transmission is actually kind of the, the nucleus of these droplets, or if you dry the droplet, it can you can still have pathogen on uh, or inf- you know infectious particles on dust mm-hmm. or just sort of hanging in the air. Um, they don't need the larger respiratory droplet to stabilize them as much. Um, so examples of things that are transmitted for what we call airborne are tuberculosis, chicken pox, measles, things like that. Okay. Now that doesn't mean of course that you can't transmit droplet infections through the air. That is how one of the primary ways the droplet infections are transmitted. Um, but there's different levels of kind of protection and different stability in the air, uh, from a droplet to an airborne. There's been a tremendous amount of confusion, um, and question about whether this particular coronavirus is transmitted, uh, by droplets or airborne. And the, the, majority of evidence, kind of the, the strongest evidence we have is that this is a droplet spread infection, just like most of our respiratory illnesses. That it is not um, at the level of, you know, tuberculosis or measles, um, where it's spread by airborne particles without respiratory droplets. Um, and some of that confusion comes in that there are certain procedures that happen in the hospital, like intubations Mm -hmm. um, in which you can aerosolize or you can make it more like an airborne transmitted pathogen. Mm -hmm. Um, And so individuals like anesthesiologists in the hospital or respiratory therapists who are working with a lot of, um, you know, respiratory equipment that makes these particles breaks them up and scatters them, Mm -hmm. um, need a higher level of protection. Um, and so that's why we're going back and forth. I think from a, from a public health standpoint, from sort of a general standpoint, the thing to know is yes, this can be transmitted through the air. The transmissibility decreases with physical distance Mm -hmm. very significantly. Um, and things like having a cloth mask on can help you prevent, uh, putting droplets out into the air. Mm -hmm. Um, and so those are kind of the big take home messages, uh, you know, including, you know, washing your hands and surfaces that are commonly touched because those can be sites of droplet persistence. Okay. Okay. So in my own layman's terms and just kind of my own limited, uh, it's basically droplets, uh, are, are in some sense are less risky than, than airborne that the droplets in some sense, uh, they can still be airborne, but potentially don't last as long. Whereas the airborne can actually linger further and, uh, cause more a widespread transmission. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And I'd be careful, you know, of course, careful with the word risky, right? Because it depends. Risk risk is a whole other conversation. (laughs) Yeah, Um, And the big picture is I think on some level for for individuals who aren't involved in decisions about, you know, PPE and, Mm -hmm. you know, what kinds of masks and things like that, for all intents and purposes, these these distinctions are not mm-hmm. uh, super consequential. Okay. Um, you know, the, at the end of the day, um, they, we hear these things and we wonder if the, you know, if there's a way that this kind of helps us to wrap our sure. minds around what's going on. And I think, you know, it's helpful to know the distinction. It's helpful to be informed. Um, yeah. But on some level, the things that we know about this virus sure. are, are the same. Okay. So good. Uh, so basically just wear your mask outside and that's and that's great we got someone to order some uh, some cloth ones we're really excited about not so fashion forward but uh, they'll do the trick right so another one uh, so why have so few people recovered in the US I just saw this in the in uh, an article I think yesterday and want to maybe throw this to Stephen and Mark as well Stephen we want to start first uh, why is this because we're still just in a contagious period or we're not recovering what's what might be behind this? Yeah, so I think really what this seems to come down to is like what actually constitutes recovery. And that's it's a very difficult question and something that we're still kind of trying to figure out here. Um, and that's, again, partly because, you know, it's um, 
I, the, the criteria for recovery, um, ideally is multiple tests that come back negative. Um, and barring that, if you don't have tests, which, you know, clearly we still have a shortage of tests and those are, and should be used for people who are suspected of primary infection, then the next criteria is, is basically just a long period of waiting, um, after which a person no longer has symptoms. And that waiting period, um, I think is at least 14 days, but I think people have advocated moving it up to 21. Um, wow. that's, a, that's a very long time, right? And so, uh, yeah, so sure. people just really haven't had time to recover in this statistically significant sense. Um, so I think we'll see the recovery rates improving. It, it doesn't necessarily reflect on that, like people in the United States are just like hanging on to their illnesses any longer or anything like that. <laughs> okay. um, it's really just a matter of bookkeeping and the fact that like to really be confident about these numbers, which we really should be confident about them if we're going to be reporting them. Um, it just it just takes that long to know for sure. Okay. Well, this leads me to my question. Then we're going to get into the deep dive. So you just said how some people are advocating 14 days, some 21 days before you're fully recovered. Okay, so here's a situation. This is my own personal experience. I'm sure other people are having this, that you're having relationships with people, uh, mother-in-laws, uh, grandparents who are either immune compromised, right? Or they're just elderly, right? They're in their 80s, they might be in their 90s, and they're, and they're in that kind of higher echelon of risk, right? If they were to get it. So then, of course, that increases, you know, me personally, my fear of, say, my mother-in-law, right? So she's older. So when is it, when is it absolutely this, if we're going to take the worst case scenario, Right. And, and and use that as my mathematical model for when I should see my mother-in-law. When should that be? In light of, right, we just saw on Monday that up to 25% of people show no signs whatsoever that they have COVID, yet they're 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 contagious and they have it. So worst case scenario, guys, I have it, right? I have no signs whatsoever, right? And then what's the longest I should wait, right, to be safe to see my mother-in-law pretending I don't have it? I have to go through the incubation period and the longest possible contagious period before I'm like, okay, I feel like we're at, at that safe bed of it's okay. Steven, do you have any ideas, Mark? Boy, it's, um, I mean, uh, it's really hard to tell because like as, sort of as Mark was saying that when, when one is assessing risk, there's just so much yeah. that goes into it. Sure. There does seem to be some evidence that, that a person who isn't showing symptoms likely isn't shedding as much virus, so probably isn't quite as contagious. A lot of the models that we've built assume that you're not as contagious if you're not symptomatic as you are when you are coughing and that sort of thing and actually sort of actively projecting virus into the air. So I think that that's, that's sort of one way of sort of helping to calibrate your risk. And also, as Mark said, the, the, the amount of physical distance between people helps too. So like if, you know, there are all sorts of ways that we can modulate our risk. So I think during this time, you know, there's, there's always going to be some risk that any one of us yeah. is infected. And I think that that's just worth bearing in mind. And that's, that's really the motivation behind the social distancing that we're doing in the first place, right? Yeah. Is, is that we're sort of all under the assumption that there's some baseline probability that any of us could be infected right now. And we need to sort of behave as if that's the case. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, it's, it's not a very satisfying answer, but I think that like, sure. there's, you know, there's, Risks are low, but then I think it really has to do with your your own threshold of, of of risk, and you know what's what's the value of seeing her in person right now, and that sort of thing. And and, and maybe this is a place where um, you know a clinical doctor would be able to come in and help sort of assess that risk. Who knows you and your family and her and that sort of thing. So Mark, I don't know. Do you have anything yeah. more illuminating to say? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, of of course it's tough, and and that hypothetical scenario also assumes that you know that there's no way that you're possibly infected in the period of waiting, um, you know, that, that absolutely no contact happens. And, and I, and I agree, I think, you know, we, we always are making these risk calculations Mm -hmm. on some level. Um, and, and so we're, we're going to, 
have to tolerate a certain level of uncertainty. And unfortunately, in this period with this particular virus, it, um, the uncertainty levels are higher. Um, and it also feels like the stakes are a lot higher. Sure. Um, and I think that, you know, there's, I think we all have to have sort of a, tr- a tremendous amount of um, gentleness towards ourselves and others as we uh, engage with that uncertainty, because that's really tough and really troubling thing. Um, do I think that there's, you know, I think you can get some maybe general guidance, like say something like, you know, you're asymptomatic for 14 days. Um, it's reasonable that you're, you know, your likelihood is very, very low. And if you haven't had any meaningful, you know, if you've been essentially very quarantined at home, yeah. I think it's, it's unlikely and you should still do the things, you know, that you would normally do. So maybe you're wearing masks, you're washing your hands a lot. You are, you know, you're not sharing a meal, unfortunately. Um, you're not, with that close physical proximity and each of those things reduces that risk a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah, but there's no, uh, no 100%. Now the one thing that could be potentially helpful, and I think we'll talk about a little bit is the idea of serologic testing. Yeah. Um, because what serologic testing does and remember, we talked about this a little bit that Telluride had done this for all of their citizens. Um, that gives us a sense of if you've been exposed, um, and if you have a level of immunity. Um, and so I think that on some level, if you're asking for a, for sure, um, you know, that is going to be the closest thing that gets us there. Mm -hmm. Um, but from a logistical standpoint, thinking that, you know, we're going to get serologic testing with sort of deep enough um, uptake that we can have it for these individualized questions when we need that information, mm-hmm. I think is pretty unlikely in the near future. And just before we get to the next part and me just pushing a little bit more on this now, Grant, in the end, we should all consult our doctor professionals that are close to us. When might be a good time? And there's, there's many factors, right? Cause I know we're getting groceries and who knows what you're doing with that, even though it's, it's quite limited and, but what I guess I'm looking for is other studies that show. I know I do see that the incubation period is upwards of two weeks at max, usually, right? It's five to seven days seems to be kind of the general hot spot, but safe spot, two weeks, right? Um, is there a similar number, roughly? Like, uh, roughly, we're contagious from about X amount of days. You're, we were seeing about, uh, give or take, you know, given stripping all the other factors away. Is there any kind of stats on the, the, the longest that it might be transmissible from the first moment of? Uh, either a sign or from that 14-day period. Yeah, you know, actually, um, that's that's been sort of one of the frustrations in the modeling is that you're right. The the incubation period has been pretty well measured, but and yeah. I and I don't fully understand why this is the case. I think there are very good reasons for it, but the 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 duration of infectiousness it's just a little bit harder to pin down. Um, and we just don't have okay. as good estimates for it. So. And again, I think that, that that's partly because it does depend on how symptomatic you are and and whether you know whether you change your behavior when you're infectious or not and that yeah. sort of thing. So I think you know, again, like like you said, the the incubation period may be on the order of, of 14 days max. We can sort of look to some of these guidelines for recovery too. I think for for indications of at least sort of what some of the public health agencies are thinking, which is maybe an additional 14 days, potentially a little bit longer. Yeah. We do know that it's it, it's. In some cases, for some illnesses, it's still possible to be infectious even after your symptoms have gone away yeah. and continue shedding virus, even though you don't actually aren't actually feeling anything. So it's it's a really tricky question, and these things can be really hard sure. to measure. So yeah, so I think that uh, you know it's 
it's it's kind of an unfortunate answer, but I think that the answer is that it, it could actually be a very long time. Well, good. I mean, uh, not good because I wanted I wanted a really good answer that was just totally set me free. But I get it's complex, and we'll wear our mask and we'll stay six feet away and we'll have a wonderful time yeah. with uh, with our mother in law. Okay, so let's get into the the meat of this for about ten minutes or so. Now, uh, I just uh, Mark. She, uh, presented this uh, video from uh, USA Today. It was interviewed by Dr. Lipsitch. Uh, I'm, 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 I have a funny feeling that uh, Stephen uh, knows him <laughs> since uh, they're actually in the same school. And he's the epidemiologist professor at Harvard, right? So uh, they're probably BFFs. Uh, uh, but it, I saw his video. It was really inter- it was really good for me to 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 to, to watch this. He kind of stated this idea that you know we need to focus on not just winning the victory but winning the war. That that he thought that kind of we were in this first halfway through this first phase. Um, we don't know how many phases really there are, but that's kind of where we're at. So I want to reflect upon now this, again, the long game uh, with Stephen and Mark. I read this article that was, I thought, really good and insightful of breaking it down, like what needs to happen before we're kind of let back out in a safe way, right? Because my fear, guys, is that we're going to get to the end of April and they're like, hey, we did it, right? We love the curb. Let's go back out. And uh, I don't think that's going to be the the best plan because my fear is we've wasted, right? We've already, tons of people have lost their jobs. Um, and, and thinking that maybe we just go back out and go back to work, it sounds emotionally like a really good idea because I want my job back or I want my work back. But in the end, it could make all this hard work and the people who lost their job all for nothing, right? So we've got to prepare and know what's the next phase and what we need to do. So because we're seeing this in China right already. China, you know, had their lockdown, they're starting to open back up and they're seeing a rise of infection. So this idea of, hey, we had our lockdown, let's go back out is clearly not the answer. So what is the answer? You know, Governor Polis from the Colo- from Colorado just mentioned that, hey, there's a, there's, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, you know, we've done a good job. You know, we mentioned about the idea of flattening the curve. Now it looks like that model changed a little bit in Colorado on Wednesday, I think it was, um, that it kind of moved forward. And I think we're at it again. We've kind of flattened it as of today or yesterday. So, but no big spikes, right? Which is great. We're still well ab- above. So there's, there is a hope in, in Colorado. But, you know, just like uh, China having uh, import, <laughs> importing basically the coronavirus, well, you know, and this, and this is for other people. Colorado has neighbors, right? Wyoming, um, uh, Nebraska, uh, Utah, who aren't taking those measures. And hopefully it won't become too big of a deal, but they could cross over, right? So there's issues involved for the future. So this idea of going from flattening the curve to crushing it now, right? Crushing the curve, which sounds way more fun, you guys. I mean, I'm like, I'm flattening the curve sounded like, ah, yeah, that's good. You know, it sounds very cerebral, but crushing it, like, uh, get me on board. I want to crush this thing, right? So how do we crush it, Stephen and Mark? And so I want to go through each one of these uh, and, 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 and these steps. I want you guys just to reflect on what does this mean? Where are we at? Where are we at right now? And uh, wh- where do you see the hope in, in this movement. So number one, these are the five things uh, that, that this article, if you want to know which, who is it by, it was from the New York Times uh, on April 6th called, How Will We Know When It's Time to Reopen the Nation? We'll put it in the show notes uh, as well. So the first one, it talked about the first thing needs to happen. Hospitals need to be able to treat all patients safely without resorting to crisis standards, right? This is the first thing we need to have kind of set in order. Um, Stephen, Mark, what, is this, what does this mean? What does it kind of entail? Yes, we've talked a little bit about the meaning of um, regular standards of care versus crisis standards of care in which we um, are forced into a situation in which we have to ration certain interventions. Um, And, you know, of course, in some of the hardest hit areas, we have seen um, the need to do that. And so what this means is that, um, you know, we're we're able to kind of operate and we have enough curve flattening that we're not at a place where we're running out of ICU beds, hospital beds, 
personnel and equipment. Um, and, you know, I think this is going to be something that is uh, somewhat local. Um, there are going to be areas of the country that have, that are, have been hotspots or will continue to be hotspots for a while. Um, unfortunately, because of the way that the virus has, um, started its transmission. And so that's going to take a little bit of time. And I think we're all in, in this phase where we're hoping, you know, the news this week has been maybe some of these social distance, we're starting to see that the curve is flattening. We're starting to see that maybe the utilization is at least, uh, plateauing in a lot of these areas, even in hard hit areas like New York city. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll have to see what happens in Louisiana. We'll have to see what happens across the country. Um, but um, that's going to take a little bit of time. We're not quite there. Maybe we'll have a lot more information uh, kind of end of the month. Okay. And I'm guessing this, this is a hard thing to do because we're not an island. So we can't just like, hey, we we can, we're, that part's good because we have neighboring states who could could potentially uh, make it more difficult for us to measure this. So I think this is, I don't know how this actually gets done. It might lead to this the next couple steps. So state needs to be able to to at least test everyone who has symptoms. So, uh, Stephen, uh, do you want to talk briefly of where might be where be at at this and what would that look like? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that we're we're still certainly a ways away from this. And, and again, it's very patchy from place to place, the, the amount of testing that is that is yeah. being done and is capable of being done. And as you mentioned, you know, it, it, this is testing everyone also means, you know, testing everyone enough times to be confident in, 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 yeah. in our results. I mean, as Mark was saying in one of our previous episodes that like, um, sometimes you do need to test someone multiple times just because of the sensitivity and specificity of these tests to really be certain of what's going on. So, so we sure. really, I mean, I, I think as from the beginning of this outbreak, like really testing continues to be one of these really key elements, um, because without it, we are to some extent sort of a little bit blinded as to what's actually going on. And, and, and it is, those tests that will allow us to 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 change sort of our our strategy from being a responsive strategy to being a proactive one. In light of that, I know the administration has pulled back from testing. I just mentioned I, I, heard, I heard that yesterday. Uh, is 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 that going to cause potentially a problem, or do we, are we kind of ramped up enough? Do you think to be able to cover that on a state and local level? Um, I mean, I, I don't know the ins and outs of sort of like the policy and, and sort of what that means for local level testing. I do think that, like, as Mark was saying, a lot of these interventions will need to be locally tailored. And so there is yeah. some value, I think, to sort of each place sort of determining their need and and figuring out how to meet that. But I do think that the really what we need is is an emphasis that testing is still very important and will be supported. So I'm a little bit discouraged by the, by that sort of pulling back from it for sure. sure. I don't think that that's the right that that's the right message to send. Yeah. And but I'm hopeful that that states will sort of pick up the banner and 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 we'll be able to sort of push this and recognize that this is really you know absolutely fundamental to our our managing of this epidemic. Yeah, it's kind of hard when we're, when the administration is really pushing to kind of uh, unleash the businesses again in May and then also take this back and like this is an important part, right? I mean, this is indispensable to know where we're at and what direction we need to go. Right. Uh, so number three, so we need to have this. We're still a little ways away and hopefully maybe just a couple months. Who knows? We don't know for certain, but we have seen a significant growth in testing and I hope that it continues to hopefully maybe grow exponentially, right, uh, to, to cover this and be able to get a good measure of where we're at. Three, that the state is able to conduct monitoring of confirmed cases and contacts. Now, this guy seems complicated. Could you give the example of being able to have a system in place to so if somebody's infected, to immediately go to cell phone records and see potentially where they may have had contact to quickly know, guys, where where are we at on this? Like, is, are we completely like on left field and have no sense of awareness, or do we have anything in place right now, or is this a, is this, is this a, a long game? 
So early on um, in the epidemic, really, this, this sort of contact tracing was was the sort of status quo for, for epidemic control in a lot of places. And um, I mean, it, there are, you know, as you mentioned, you know, there's the option of like using technology, like cell phone records and that sort of things. But that that really opens up a really huge can of worms in terms of privacy and um, things like that. But but contact tracing is, you know, basically as as old as epidemiology, which is pretty old. And, you know, so <laughs> so that's something we know how to do well. And it's also something that a lot of countries who have achieved some level of control over this epidemic already are using on a, on a broad mm. scale. And if okay. like South Korea and Singapore are really brought up as really good examples of places that are doing this. Uh, the important thing is that that I mean, there's a reason that this is you know late in this in one of the later steps because this really only becomes feasible once the number of cases has gone down enough that you can actually devote the personnel to do this kind of thing. We couldn't do mm. that right now just because there are too many infections okay. coming in. Again, another reason why we need to level the curve. Uh, to, to, to yeah, and you know, another thing to keep in mind too as we as we do that is that there are vulnerable populations in our communities who may not have access to cell phones stable housing, mailing addresses, and things like that. And so those, there, there are additional logistical issues. And, you know, on some level, fortunately, we have encountered that with other disease processes and tracking patients or calling patients with results um, and having them uh, or, you know, notifying uh, close contacts and things is something that our healthcare system does with certain disease processes. Um but again, you know the the it's the level of resource utilization to do it when this is a uh, pandemic situation, um, and then making sure that we're taking care of our vulnerable populations as well. So yeah, uh, like many of these things, it seems like some of these things are in place, but the scalability of this is not quite even remotely there to be able to say, okay, we can let people out, and we have the resources to keep things at bay, uh, and that so we need to buy more time. The uh, fourth one. Uh, it must be sustained. Re- there must be a sustained reduction for at least 14 days. Now, I didn't quite sure what this meant. Did this mean that, like, uh, there, that that the flattening of the curve must be 14 days straight, or like, what what does that look like for us? And is is that what Colorado is starting to to be? Uh, Mark, you want to chat for us about that? Yeah, you know, I think it, um, essentially what we the hope is that we would see fewer cases confirmed every day um, for at least 14 days, and. Um, the time to start the clock for that is when we start to see, and we think that we've sort of reached a peak. Okay. And so there have been has been some evidence based on some of the models that maybe we're there in Colorado um, and need to start this 14 day uh, clock. And of course, we'll see you know how things go over the next couple of days um, if indeed that's the case. Okay. And then the the last one here, which I think this might be a good little chat session because this to me is the most promising, is the, to have established serological testing to test antibodies, allowing those people to like. So this is a great like. It seems like this is a, a lot of effort to be put into this so that we can actually have that litmus test to say, hey, you're okay to go back to work and start phasing people back in. So what does this mean, uh, Stephen? You want to chat for a little bit about this and uh, where are we at on this, uh, this process of being able to offer this uh, on a widespread scale? Yeah, so uh, I think you know you're absolutely right that this this is going to be one of the keys to to sort of transitioning back into our our normal day to day life. We're still a ways away from that. There's still some uncertainty as to you know again the 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 sensitivity and specificity of the serological tests and understanding just how much they tell us about immunity. 
there's still big questions about the duration of immunity to the virus and whether that correlates with how severe your infection actually was. And so at, at the moment, we're sort of in the very early days of serological testing so that we can understand sort of the baseline immunity dynamics of this virus. And then once we understand sort of what we can expect and sort of what's going on, you know, using statistical methods in the general population, then I think we can think about rolling this out to more people and sort of making on a more individualized or at least community scale level, you know, how close are we to herd immunity? How much risk is there in sending people back to work? Who can go back to work? And how should we maybe think about um, constructing shifts such that the risk of infection is a little bit lower? Things like that. So I think that uh, definitely these questions about returning to work are, um, they're sort of the next big area that we as as modelers are thinking about now and thinking about how we can incorporate some of these data in a maximally informative and meaningful way. Um, But I think that both both due to the the limitation of serological testing at the moment and the fact that we still have a lot of of parameters about this virus that are still unknown um, means that it'll it'll still be some time before uh, before we're able to really make, make use of that information and roll it out on a big enough scale to make these decisions. And I know I saw an article about this uh, that when it comes to herd immunity, it looks like between fifty and seventy percent need to have that before we're actually in that in that area. And it looks like at you know at best maybe well, we don't know for sure, but at, at least maybe current models that we maybe you know at 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 its peak only at three percent right now. So we have a long way to go yeah. to be able to get there. And so I was <laughs> joking with Mark, I was like we're we're at a point right now where we're like afraid of the coronavirus, and I feel like at some point in time we're gonna try to buy it like on Amazon so we can quickly get the herd immunity. Like I'm gonna give a hundred bucks for this viral so I can get it and be over with and have the antibody and go out to right. <laughs> it's the next big market sale, guys. So I'm joking. Please don't try to sell this. This is not this is this is not what we want to do. But, <laughs> well, you know what that um, is? It's a vaccine. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> oh yeah, it's still oh, yeah. <laughs> totally yeah yeah there we go <laughs> yeah that is exactly that is the most non-scientific way to explain a vaccine that i did not mean to actually do so you are welcome listeners uh, that i i was able to put it in perspective for you guys all this being said we have a long way to go and uh, there's a lot of things to be in place we're just trying to buy time we're trying to buy time so we can these kind of place so we can be let out I, I don't even know the ins and outs like how you actually let somebody out and governor polis we talks about how maybe in the next few weeks or so in may we might go back to business a little bit, right? Uh, and what that means and how you get tested. And there's a lot of unknowns. So I want to land in this way, being grounded. Uh, the one thing I thought about is this idea of the one thing. Now, if you haven't read this book, you got to read this book. It's called The One Thing, The Surprisingly Simple Truth Behind Extraordinary Results by Gary Keller. I read this book. It was kind of a, a shifting a book for me because a lot of us right now, we feel overwhelmed and undirected. And there's a lot of overwhelm in the sense of uh, there's a lot of newness, right? So we're still in there. Uh, even though we've been there for a few weeks. So I'm sure some of you have probably kind of been able to buckle down a little bit, get into a new routine, but at least still feels uh, psychologically overwhelming. And definitely, I feel undirected at times. Even though I have a job, it's hard to be able to, you know, I don't have my office. I'm constantly moving from one room to the next because I disrupt our entire family and their sessions. And so I feel like this exile in my own home of like just being, being be a castaway in my basement. And uh, then I go up to the upstairs. And so there's an undirected about this. And so how do we kind of get a sense of control when we feel out of control? And one thing we don't want to do is just add a bunch of goals to our life right now. This is not the time to add tons of goals to increase our burden by tenfold. This is why I love uh, Gary Keller's book. It's all about this one thing and what he defines the one thing. Now, listen to this. I think this is awesome. The one thing is this. What's the one thing you can do such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary, right? So it's not just one thing in general. 
it's being intentional about thinking about that one thing that in my in my mind it's a cascading effect right i i think of i mean i'm uh, in my simple simple uh, analogy would be like the person who has high blood pressure maybe overweight and high blood pressure what do you do with it right well you could just get a pill which i, I which i totally say that if it's needed you, you need to do that right but that that is the quick fix but what's the one thing that actually might have a cascading effect so uh, um for me you know, being I've been overweight at times, and I'm still trying to lose weight, and I'm a little lethargic, right? I could I could do a lot of different things to to get more energy to be able to be with my kids. But the the number one thing for me that has a cascading effect would be exercising, right? It it makes me lose weight. It gives me more energy for my boys, so I'm actually not feeling like I'm 80 when I'm when I'm really like 40, 42. Actually, I don't even know how old I am right now. So that side side that I always forget. Once you get above, I think 20, 28, you just forget. So when you combine <laughs> when you combine a quarantine with over 40 years of old, not only do I forget my age. Sometimes I forget who I am as an individual, so I gotta gotta be recalled about that. So, so uh, this we call, I, it, we call that delirium. <laughs> so that's where I'm at. I have cabin fever. So, uh, so this idea of uh, you know that that one thing could just be to be exercise. So I want to encourage you guys right now to spend some time and just focus on one thing, to be grounded in one thing that moves your life forward and makes you have a sense of control. Now, if you want more information about this, I have this blog I posted a while back that I think is a good helpful. It talks about this one about the one thing. Uh, it's called Five Steps to Having the Best Month of Your Life. And I give you five simple ways to, be able to really get a sense of control when we kind of feel out of control. I mean, there's a lot of things that we cannot do, like go outside and reconnect with our friends and family in a physical way. There are other creative ways that we can do that, but it still doesn't quite meet or satisfy what we really, really desire. And that's that, that human physical contact. So we have to try other things. So one thing that's helped me profoundly is having this one thing that's always in my life that I'm trying to move forward in my life. And it, it could be anything, but not to be so, uh, get overwhelmed by the many things that you want to do and fill the space with just random stuff, but give that margin, give that space, Connect with yourself, connect with the people that you're they're in your midst, whether it's your apartment or your dorm or wherever it may be that, you, that you're being quarantined, and then begin to think, what is this one thing in my life right now that by doing it, everything else feels a little bit easier or maybe even unnecessary, right? It might be even a psychological pursuit, a mind shift that you have to try to achieve so that life just feels easier, right? helping to get a sense of control. So I encourage you guys right now, get the book. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, it changed my life in, in, uh, from an overly complex one to simplifying it tremendously. Okay, any last thoughts, guys? No, I think that's great. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I'm thinking about just um, broadly as we're, you know, we're talking about where we're at in the pandemic and what next steps are going to look like um, and also kind of thinking about how each of us conduct our days in the midst of all of that um, is just the, the tremendous amount of kind of creativity and leadership that it's going to take to be able to have the sort of um, big, big and yet prudent thoughts, you know, to get um, to put hold together the scientific need uh, or scientific evidence in our, you know, our need, our obligations to our communities, um, our personal needs uh, for things like connection um, and seeing other people. Um, these, uh, you know, the communal needs that we have, the economic needs, and and to develop sort of a, a type of vision for what that looks like, um, I, I think is is sort of the big challenge right now. And um, in some ways each one of us has this little part to play in that type of leadership and synthetic global thinking, thinking. Um, and these sorts of practices that, you know, I think 
Matt, just this idea of like, how do we consolidate? How do we get grounded? And how do we clarify our vision a little bit Mm -hmm. for what needs to happen? Um, Mm -hmm. I think um, I have a lot of hope. um, And and there's also, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's, you know, a lot of people have been really dislocated from their usual routines and their usual productivity and things like that. Um, but we need all of that creative energy and we need all of that, um, you know, good thinking and, and, uh, human connection in the next phase. Yeah. We need creativity. And one way we need creativity is by buying more margin in our life. So reducing the, the workload, adding more space, uh, that allows you to be in touch with yourself. That allows you to know who you are. That allows you to have vision of like what you really desire in your life. And then that allows you to be able to facilitate that one thing that maybe drives that needle forward in that one specific area that you've been wanting for for years. You didn't even know it, right? But the first thing that needs is margin. And then, and then allowing yourself to give that space and not to refill it with random crap like entertainment and just stuff that goes nowhere in life. But giving that one thing, that room to be pursued. And man, when I do that, I come alive. We're made to create. We're made to create. And right now, it could be a difficult time, but the opportunity to do something great is still there. This is a great time to have a pandemic, right? Because we have the technology that still allows us to remain connected to the outside world that didn't even, wasn't even close 25 years ago, right? That's even 25. So much we can do. Granted, I don't want to be here, but I'm thankful we have what we have right now. I encourage you to make use of it, to grow in it, to find that place where you can provide an incredible impact to the world and not just sit and wait, right? Okay, we're gonna end. I hope you have a wonderful Thursday, a wonderful weekend. We'll be back on Monday with this incredible news from Stephen, which we're gonna leave you hanging. We're gonna put in the show notes, the five steps to having the best month of your life. Read it, it's really good stuff. Uh, the One Thing by Keller, and we'll put in the Dr. Lipsitch uh, video as well, which I thought was a really, really good interview. I hope you guys have a great weekend and we'll see you on Monday. Take care, bye-bye.